The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined for the second time by Richard Seymour. We'll be discussing the ongoing Labour anti-Semitism controversy. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. If you like the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. The podcast also has its own Patreon page, so if you've been enjoying the show, please do consider donating. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Richard Seymour is the author of many books, including The Liberal Defense of Murder, Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, Against Austerity, and most recently, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. He's also a commissioning editor for the journal Salvage, and you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Leninology. So, Richard, since we last spoke, the uh, the crisis in the Labour Party regarding anti-Semitism has, has really escalated. We've had uh, Labour MP Margaret Hodge allegedly calling Jeremy Corbyn a, quote, fucking anti-Semite and a racist. We've had Britain's three largest Jewish newspapers publishing uh, articles claiming that a Corbyn-led Labour Party represents an existential threat to Jewish life in Britain. There were the 68 Jewish rabbis who signed a letter labelling the Labour leadership insulting and arrogant in failing to challenge, quote, severe and widespread anti-Semitism within the party. And all of this seems to have also provoked something of a split amongst Corbyn's uh, supporters in the Labour Party and, and the broader Labour movement. So, for instance, we had uh, Matt Rack of the Fire Brigades Union criticising John Landsman of Momentum uh, due to Momentum's decision to withdraw their support for Peter Willsman um, after he was recorded at a meeting claiming never to have encountered anti-Semitism in the party. Why do you think that this crisis for the for the leadership of the Labour Party has accelerated so dramatically recently? And, and where do your sympathies lie regarding that uh, apparent split between some of uh, Corbyn's supporters? There are a few things. First of all, on Peter Willsman, um, I don't think what he said was particularly intelligent. I wouldn't describe it as anti-Semitic. Uh, and to that extent, I agree with Matt Rack that uh, he's... Um, being unfairly treated in as much as he's being called an anti-Semite. But uh, if you say, uh, as somebody who sat on the disputes committee of the Labour Party, that you've never seen anti-Semitism, I think that's worryingly obtuse. I also think that um, uh, if you uh, make that claim, and you have good reason to have made that claim that you genuinely haven't seen anti-Semitism, it's still kind of beside the point. There are examples of anti-Semitism. It's not difficult to find them. Um, and the question is what you make of them. Now, the um, right-wing Jewish newspapers that are opposed uh, to Jeremy Corbyn and to the wider uh, radical left, and uh, not just on the issue of Palestine, by the way, I would say, 
um, is uh, their analysis is that this is representative of a broader thrust of anti-Jewish, Judeophobic ideology that is linked to and justified by hatred of Israel. And they would see uh, any uh, fundamental, foundational critique of Israel rather than just the soft uh, focus kind of critique of certain Israeli policies um, as being an attack on the conditions of Jewish life. And I think that's what they mean. I mean, it sounds bananas when they say that a Corbyn-led government would be a threat to Jewish life, an existential threat to Jewish life. But And it is bananas, but that's what they mean. So they are making of um, these examples of anti-Semitic behavior a wider narrative that fits in with their broader sense of um, how Israel works in global politics. To them, Israel normalizes the status of Jewish people in a hostile world. Um, to me, it's utterly tragic that that argument um, won the day. Um, and there's no question that argument won the day because of the um, uh, extraordinary um, explosions of anti-Jewish violence culminating in the Nazi Holocaust um, in the middle of the last century. Um, but it's tragic nonetheless because it means that um, the, a large number of Jewish people in Britain, and perhaps globally, believe that uh, their survival as such, their normal situation, depends upon the physical, um, moral, ideological, economic oppression of the Palestinians. And that can't be right. So one of the most uh, widely shared articles on the left on the on the topic of, of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is a, is a piece by Barnaby Rain uh, for Navarra Media. Um, in which he argues, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's the position that I have most sympathy with, and I suspect that you do as well, that um, although clearly the issue of, of anti-Semitism is being, uh, being weaponised by Corbyn's political opponents for, for quite cynical reasons, um, that's not to say that anti-Semitism within the Labour Party doesn't exist, or, nor that it isn't a significant problem. Um, but I did just want to read something to you by the writer Jamie Stern Viner, who we both know, and um, I, I know we both have, have have a lot of respect for his work. Um, I'll be slightly paraphrasing, but the the substance will be the same. So he references a Pew survey from 2015, and he says. Pew surveys consistently find that about 7 to 8% of the UK population holds an unfavourable opinion of Jews. This number is low relative to other minority groups and has been stable since the early 1990s. In that context, how can British Jewry be facing an existential threat? It can't be because of a dramatic rise in anti-Semitism, because there is no evidence of such a rise. It can't be because Jews now face heightened discrimination, because there is no evidence of this either. So the obvious and crucial question is, what changed? Uh, the answer is obvious. The Labour Party elected as its leader a socialist and a veteran campaigner for Palestinian rights. Uh, given that there doesn't really seem to be much data to to contradict the picture of, of the scale of anti-Semitism in the UK that Jamie is describing, um, it, it, it does really seem to give credence to the notion that we're looking at a crisis that has essentially been manufactured in order to attack the Labour leadership rather than reflecting a real crisis of increased anti-Semitism. What would your view be on that? Um, I think there's something to that and I think there's a lot to it, but um, I would qualify it in a few ways. Uh, first of all, 
I do think that um, uh, there are more widespread forms of anti-Semitism than we had previously realized. Um, I think some of the uh, research um, looking into the spread of, for example, anti-Semitic stereotypes finds that they're quite widespread. Uh, what I think is that um, it's for historical reasons that those tropes, those anti-Semitic beliefs, have become detached from uh, the ability of the state to persecute Jewish people. There's not much evidence, for example, that Jewish people are more likely to be arrested uh, uh, by the police or locked up. Um, and uh, it's been detached from economic dis discrimination and disenfranchisement. In strictly economic terms, uh, Jewish Britons are among the most successful ethnic groups in the country. Um, so, uh, fortunately, these anti-Semitic stereotypes have been, to some extent, disarmed. Um, they've been rendered, rendered toothless. What I would say is that that's not necessarily um, a, a guaranteed situation. And with the global situation that we live in, with the rise of the racist right, and with the correlation between anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and other forms of racism, anti-black racism, anti-migrant racism, I would say that it's quite plausible uh, and possible for forms of anti-Semitism to acquire teeth uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, and so therefore I think we should be very wary of saying anything that appears to, for example, uh, diminish it. But we should retain a certain sense of perspective. Um, if you're a migrant in this country, um, if you're a Muslim in this country, if you're black in this country, you're much more likely to face certain types of discrimination. There is, beyond that, an ethical consideration. I'm not in favour of playing oppression Olympics, so if you have examples of anti-Semitism, I don't think it's good enough to relativize that and say, well, you know, it's not as bad as other forms of racism. Where it comes up, it is very serious and it needs to be faced down. Um, so, you know, I'm all in favor of um, Jamie Sternwiener's analyses. <laughs> I think he's um, one of the smartest writers we have. Um, and I think he's um, quite critical of the way that a lot of the left has responded um, to the anti-Semitism crisis, perhaps giving a little bit too much credence to those who are attacking Jeremy Corbyn, and to an extent I agree with him, I just want to register that caution. We do have to make it clear that we don't think anti-Semitism is, in some sense, a trivial problem in the United Kingdom. Specifically regarding anti-Semitism on the left, so uh, in, in March of this year, um, I'm, I'm almost certainly going to say his, his name wrong, uh, Moishe Postone died, um, a, a Jewish Marxist who, who wrote a lot about anti-Semitism, uh, speci specifically regarding the, the Holocaust. Um, his position seems to be a, a variant of, of that notion of, of anti-Semitism as the socialism of, of fools. Um, you know, this this idea of, of modern anti-Semitism as, as kind of inseparable from capitalism and, and that it's a way of personalizing and rationalizing the experience of of, uh, of being subject to abstract market forces and, and seemingly capricious and uh, incomprehensible financial crises. Um, what do you make of that kind of argument? Well, that's clearly a part of anti-Semitism, um, but it's not the only part. I mean, after all, uh, anti-Semitic stereotypes historically 
um, have, I mean, it, at least in as much as this is about uh, talking about elites, capitalist elites and so on, and about explaining away uh, social antagonisms within capitalism by blaming it on Jews, well, um, we also have to be uh, aware of the extent to which anti-Jewish stereotypes have historically been rather similar uh, to the stereotypes against Roma, uh, to the stereotypes against um, Muslims today, to the stereotypes against migrants from poorer countries. Um, so I, I would be wary of essentializing anti-Semitism, and this is you know what concerns me about some of these types of analyses. Um, racism, I think Stuart Hall said, is always historically specific. In other words, it's always constructed with reference to today's situation, today's conflicts, today's antagonisms. And what racism does is it enables us to code those antagonisms, uh, to link them to uh, colored and raced bodies, and uh, to give a social meaning to them. Um, so the way in which anti-Semitism works today is complicated. Uh, quite often it is linked to the idea of Jewish elites, um, to the idea of some, uh, you know, the, there is the thesis advanced by Paul Eisen and Gilad Atzman and various creeps of that ilk uh, about Jewish power. Okay, so that's one way of talking about it. But it wouldn't be surprising um, if uh, socioeconomic circumstances were to change, uh, to see the re recrudescence of other forms of anti-Semitism, which were more about um, stereotypes of the poor, class stereotypes, and so on. Um, I suppose even within Nazi ideology, there was a, a split focus on both um, more affluent Jews uh, working in the financial sector and so on, and at the same and at the same time, a, a real hatred of, of less affluent Jews in Eastern Europe as well. Well, I mean, don't forget, I mean, Jews were blamed for the excesses of financial capitalism and uh, for uh, communism. Um, they were blamed for um, you know, causing just about every problem. And so, you know, the fascist fantasy uh, is to have capitalism without capitalism. In other words, capitalism without uh, antagonisms, capitalism without class struggle, capitalism without dysfunctions, capitalism without crises, and so on and so on. Um, so, you know, that's uh, the, the point is that the uh, figure of Jewish people in racist ideology has been highly mutable um, and uh, has been highly various. Um, today, I think, uh, because of the fact that uh, since World War II, uh, Jewish people have been relatively more successful um, and have migrated, you know, uh, not, uh, it should be said, to the ruling class by and large, but more to the middle class um, uh, than, you know, previously they would have been the poorer end of the working class in this country. But that uh, class transformation means that probably a lot of the stereotypes we're seeing today will be so-called anti-elite stereotypes, and they will be linked to conspiracy theories um, and ideologies of power, which... Um, are organized around resentment rather than uh, serious analyses of how power works. Yeah, I mean, re regarding the conspiracy theories, so I was thinking the other day about uh, about ill-spent time on the Media Lens message board about 10 years ago. And um, on that board, I think, uh, like like me, you, you probably would have encountered 9-11 conspiracists. Um, and, and also, I think now and then there were there were certainly people using anti-Semitic tropes um, in a specifically leftist context who um, 
you know, by and large, was, were were swiftly kicked off the board. Um, although that wasn't the case with the, the you know the nine eleven crew. And I suppose I was thinking about this because I was I was trying to trying to think about why those conspiracy theories are 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 appealing to a certain portion of the left. And um, I suppose one way I've thought about it is that, uh, and I don't want to you know I don't want to tar the media lens people with this brush. They're not responsible for the people who were posting on their board, um, but. Their politics uh, was, uh, I guess, sort of anarchist, but but really, you know, it's it's a politics that's overwhelmingly informed by the analysis of of, of Noam Chomsky, and um, and back then, my my politics was was broadly the same. Really, um, I sort of wonder that the possible appeal of conspiracy theories to people in that kind of uh, intellectual milieu might have something to do with the kind of analytical thinness of of that that Chomskyan perspective, which, you know, largely rejects Marxism uh, and pretty much all all post-structuralist theory as well. But then on the other hand, as you said during our last uh, conversation, there was clearly an issue with with anti-Semites being tolerated in the Socialist Workers' Party as well, uh, which, you know, obviously was a a Marxist party. Um, Where do you think that stuff comes from? Is it related to a decline of the left over the late 80s and 90s? Well, definitely. But uh, I mean, just to clarify about the Socialist Workers' Party, uh, I think the problem with them was that they tend to rationalize um, and justify anti-Semitism in the case of individuals who are opposed to Israel. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was egregiously the case uh, with Gilad Atzman. Um, I don't think that anybody in there was personally anti-Semitic. That said, I mean, uh, maybe that's not even a relevant point. That said, um, in terms of the kinds of problems that came up in the era of the war on terror, um, you'll remember the anti-Semitic stereotypes about 9-11. I mean, uh, I was uh, shocked when I first heard some of them, but they uh, were surprisingly uh, popular among a certain constituency. The idea, well, uh, none of the Jews went to work that day, you know, um, that kind of thing. Um, And there emerged uh, on the fringes of the anti-war movement uh, a populist uh, and a pseudo-radical uh, politics which had um, anti-Semitic tinges often enough. Um, and I think what happened was that, uh, yes, of course, the left had been battered. Uh, its actual material resources were very poor, very slim. Um, the, uh, the, the idea of an anti-imperialist left had been forgotten for a long time. So the resources of anti-imperialist ideologies, which had been quite well developed in the 1960s and 70s, had been almost completely forgotten. If you recall, the um, sort of the the year before that, uh, everything was focused on the anti-capitalist movement, and the anti-capitalist movement was in its sort of early days. You know, the golden days uh, when everybody was getting along, and it was a kind of a honeymoon, and we all agreed capitalism is bad, and we have to replace it with something nicer. Um, and it wasn't really clear beyond that what capitalism meant. Um, different people had different analyses of capitalism, and I suspect that lingering within that, uh, you know, was a minority. I mean, not a very big minority to be fair, but a certain tinges, uh, people who basically had uh, conspiratorial understandings, New World Order style understandings, and so on. The kind of um, lunatic hippie fringe, if I may put it like that. Um, 
And some of that fed into the anti-war movement. And I think that there were um, alliances of convenience between bits of the radical left and the conspiratorial right and this sort of what in America we'll call paleoconservatives. And even uh, I remember Alex Jones being popular with certain types of uh, anti-war people at the time um, because uh, he was critical of the Bush administration and because he just came out and said, oh, oh, you know, accused the Bush administration of worse crimes than we could even have imagined. You know, I mean, according to Alex Jones, uh, the Bush administration was murdering children, um, not in Iraq, but, uh, you know, in, in back gardens, um, uh, in secret meetings and so on. So, um, this uh, appealed to people, a certain number of people greatly, and I can see that there's a... Um, uh, an elective affinity between that kind of conspiratorial thinking and anti-Semitic thinking. Uh, let's uh, sort of alight briefly on the Mir One mural, um, because the Mir One mural is a meat exemplar of that. Mir One, as far as he's concerned, he wasn't being remotely anti-Semitic. He didn't think that uh, this was anti-Semitic to uh, depict power in this way uh, with a table of, uh, you know, uh, bigwigs running the whole world and a lot of uh, people very... Uh, sort of classically depicted as Jewish there and so on. He didn't get why there, there was anything wrong with that. Um, and, uh, you know, when he tried to justify it, he said, well, you know, it's the Rothschilds and so on. So classically anti-Semitic stereotypes were built into his ideology, but he just didn't see it. And a lot of people who justified that mural and said, I don't see anything wrong with that. That's just representing the rich. That's representing the elite. What, we're not allowed to talk about the elite now? Those people, um, uh, you know, I, I worry about the fact that their um, level of political education um, is, I, I, this sounds patronizing, but their level of political education is so poor. Because I think, um, as Barney B. Rain pointed out, had this um, uh, image been circulated, for example, in the 1930s, every socialist would have recognized it as enemy propaganda. Had it been sent out in Trump's Twitter feed, I think probably a lot more people would have recognized it as enemy propaganda. The fact that it was seen as being associated with the left and coming within a leftist framework meant that a lot of people were prepared to sort of uh, blot out any doubts that they may have had about it. Um, and then, of course, finally, uh, there's the sort of siege mentality. So, you know, we all have um, a sense of being under attack if we're uh, in any way associated with Camp Corbin. We have a sense that every day you open, turn on the news or you open the newspapers, there's a fresh attack. Um, and that creates a tendency to uh, bunker down um, and stop thinking. Um, and I suppose what um, encourages that more than anything else is that the main medium that people have for thinking aloud and for conversing is this um, uh, is the platforms and in a way that's the worst of all possible worlds when it comes to actually having a conversation it's good if you want to put out a, a platitude if you want to promote a product if you want to put out a slogan um, it's not very good if you want to work out a complex and nuanced position or if you want to have a democratic collective discussion and work out what you want to do about something. Um, and that's one of the problems with uh, a lot of this discussion, like, for example, the reaction to Pete Wilsman, um, rather than having had a democratic discussion about who should be on the slate in advance, uh, they put him on the slate without consultation, without any real input, and then panicked when there was an attack. Um, 
and reacted as quickly as the social media sort of churn uh, compelled them to. So perhaps we need to find a way to do politics differently as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder whether um, obviously the the treatment of Corbyn and, and the movement that's coalesced around him in the media is is very significant. But at the same time, I do wonder if it might be helpful for us all to to try and be a little bit more sanguine about the attacks from the media and to recognise that they're you know they're inevitable and and perhaps not to overestimate their power. And I, I think a tendency to do that probably does help to explain that that tendency amongst some Corbyn supporters to just sort of hunker down and insist that all the criticism is, is wrong in its entirety and, and so on. Um, and, and I think we should, you know, also probably remember that, you know, obviously um, Corbyn has been demonised for, for a pretty long time now. Uh, he seemed to have been thoroughly and very effectively discredited before last year's election. Um, but, you know, clearly that didn't stop Labour under Corbyn achieving the highest vote share for, for a very long time. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. Um, and it's something that occurred to me when this latest sequence was starting up. I thought, why are they doing this again? Because it's never worked before. It's not going to work now. Um, the polls are not going to show a significant um, uh, problem uh, for Jeremy Corbyn, I suspect. Um, there will be um, a hardening of opinion among those Jewish voters who already dislike him and distrust him. And I think that any chance of them being won back now is pretty much gone, uh, if there was ever any chance of them being won over. Um, and let's remember that um, uh, Ed Miliband had the support of, I think, about 13 or 14 percent of British Jews. Um, uh, Corbyn, it was a, a, percent, a percentage point more, if anything. Um, so I think that um, those positions are quite hardened by now. Um, so, I mean, the idea that there's going to be a fundamental uh, transformation of um, the political situation because of these uh, daily attacks, I think, is unsustainable. So I really wonder why they keep coming back for this. And the only thing I can think is that this is the way they, can th they think politics is done. This way they're used to doing politics. You do it by headline. You do it by media. You do it by news cycle. You do it by constant pressure. Um, well, I mean, they have no other skills, right? I mean, that you know, that's that's how it seems to me. I mean, it, you know, I think of it as it's the terrain they fight on because they don't have the skills to to fight on any other terrain. Politically, I think uh, people on the right of the Labour Party who are instrumentalising this to attack the leadership um, have been in a crisis for a long time, and that they are acting out. And that reflects, uh, the, you know, the, their attempt to create a crisis for Corbyn reflects that acting out. And they're prepared, obviously, to be incredibly ruthless, incredibly foul, um, uh, to make vile um, insinuations and slanders. But they've been prepared to do that from the start. They did it during the so-called chicken coup. Um, really, um, this is probably the last thing they've got. I mean, they had the idea, well, Corbyn can't win an election. They can't stick with that anymore. They tried with the idea, well, he's, he's not going to stand up against Brexit. And so they thought that they would mobilize uh, the Remain voting youth. That hasn't got them anywhere, really. Um, so this is the, the one thing that really has purchase, but it only has purchase in as much as during um, uh, what is 
famously called the silly season in the media during the summer months um, it's very easy um, if you can give people a bit of excitement something to get uh, worked up about uh, that to uh, harness the news agenda now again just to clarify there are things happening in terms of anti-semitism that should should be worrying I think Councillor Enticott um, made horrible anti-semitic statements I mean the worst you could possibly imagine calling for Jews to be executed and he was a Labour councillor um, I think Alan Bull uh, previously uh, made Holocaust denial statements and he wanted to be a Labour councillor um, there are a number of other examples of this so I'm not in any way saying that none of these examples are uh, you know serious none of them are true etc etc what I am saying is that the attempt to smear Corbyn as singularly responsible for every single example of anti-Semitism in uh, the left and the Labour movement and the Labour Party um, and to uh, make this up into a huge existential threat um, strikes me as uh, depending on your point of view, if, if the aim is to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, it strikes me as a sign of despair. I don't think it's going to work. That said, what it has done, as you say, is it has split the left strategically and tactically. And that means that it's exposed some of the left's weaknesses. Um, in response to repeated attacks, beginning with uh, the stuff at OULC, uh, which is where these attacks really kicked off, um, uh, the, there are elements of the left that have repeatedly been provoked into saying and doing stupid things. And what I mean by that is they, um, uh, you know, had someone like uh, Christine Shawcroft, um, who I think probably quite honorably uh, tried to defend Alan Bull um, against an expulsion by honourably, I mean she uh, seems not to have seen the material that uh, you know was really offensive. I genuinely think if she had seen that, uh, she would not have been defending him. But then, I don't see why uh, you would defend someone without looking at the evidence against them. I think that's a mistake, and I think it's a result of feeling a bit uh, under pressure and bunkered. Um, I think that um, uh, you know the fact that Willsman made his outburst in the way that he did, or the fact that, for example, Jackie Walker and a bunch of her associates and supporters went to a Jewish labor movement meeting to start a fight. These are all, um, you know, even in cynical real politic terms, these are terrible, terrible tactical misadventures. I've no idea why um, anybody would think to behave in that way. Um, and, or rather, I do have some sense, I actually uh, can see very clearly psychologically why one would go down that direction. It's because people feel um, under attack and there's a siege mentality and uh, they have con constructed, often enough, a kind of neat um, ideological explanation, the Israel lobby. And that sums up everything um, that uh, is threatening and everything that is ranged against one. And if you, uh, uh, you know, harden your line and defend yourself against the Israel lobby and mobilize against them, um, then presumably that's supposed to, uh, you know, defend your position. 
I think it's just led people into making um, politically stupid mistakes. And I think that reflects the um, incoherence of the basic concept. Just going back to Corbyn's opponents within the, the PLP and the media, um, one thing I found myself thinking about is uh, is so-called horseshoe theory, uh, you know, this notion, beloved of centrists, that, um, that the far left and the far right have more in common with each other than they do with, uh, the, political, uh, with the political centre. I'm, I'm sure we'd both reject that, in part because that self-portrayal of centrists as, as consistent anti-racist, for instance, is, is massively contradicted by the by the recent historical records, including in the case of, of people like Margaret Hodge. Um, but nonetheless, in, in the context of this, um, this long-term crisis of capitalism that we're, that we're living through and, and that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, it does feel like the, the far left and the far right are, you know, sort of minimally united in the sense that both attempt to offer solutions to that crisis, although obviously those solutions are, are, are diametrically opposed and, and um, the solutions on the far right are, you know, just entirely reprehensible. But it does contrast, I think, with the position of, of, of the centrists. The politics of, of centrists seems to be not much more, really, than, than a desire to turn the clock back to approximately 1998, um, despite there just not being the material conditions to sustain the centrist um, neoliberal hegemony of that time. And so it feels to me like all they're doing really is just trying to evade and, and put off a, a pretty inevitable reckoning with their own irrelevance and, and the implausibility of their, their politics in the current uh, conjuncture. But I also think that, uh, it, you know, it's the best strategy they have. It might not be much use in the long term, but for now it does seem to be a relatively fruitful approach for them to take to try and uh, conflate the far left and the far right as much as possible. Well, I mean, in terms of um, uh, ideological uh, connections and resonances, uh, I mean, this um, idea that the far left and the far right have more in common, etc., etc., has its roots in Cold War anti-totalitarian theory, um, which, I mean, it's a crude version of the idea that Nazism and Stalinism are basically the same, and that therefore everybody that's on the left is ultimately heading towards Stalinism and everybody that's on the right is ultimately heading towards fascism. And what you need is uh, what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called the vital center, the tough-minded, virile, masculine center to hold everything in place. Um, I have to say, if you look at the history of the political center, and by that I mean uh, the history of liberalism, um, it has um, an imbrication with every principle of hierarchy and oppression and exploitation that you can think of. It also has lots of other imbrications, uh, but if you wanted to look at justifications for the slave trade, you would be reading John Locke. Um, if you wanted to look at justifications for the British Empire and rule over India, you would be reading uh, John Stuart Mill or sentimental reformers like Dickens, who literally called for genocide against um, uh, Hindus on the grounds that uh, their uprising against the British was barbaric. Um, if you wanted to look at um, uh, historic justifications for uh, major crimes against humanity, um, for example, um, the use of uh, nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or the uh, internment of Japanese during World War II, or you know, and so on and so on. You'll find that a lot of this came from liberals, 
and um, it's not therefore as straightforward as the idea that the left and right converge on uh, some basic ideas uh, uh, and where they are supposed to converge, it rests on the idea that the left's ultimate, true, real meaning is Stalinism. Whereas I would say that, straightforwardly, Stalinism was the betrayal and defeat of the Russian Revolution. Um, so, I mean, th uh, that's, that's how I would situate that. In terms of the, where we are today, the political centre... Uh, has no basis for trying to distinguish itself from uh, what you might call the alt-left and the alt-right. The alt-left being, I think, the sort of populist, um, uh, sort of news cycle-driven, uh, opportunistic kind of left-wing discourse that you get um, on the internet. I'm not going to name names. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, when it comes to conspiracy theories, uh, when it comes to paranoid discourse, today's centre, when they talk about how uh, Hillary Clinton lost the presidential election in 2016, when they talk about how Brexit happened, they are far more paranoid and far more averse uh, to a recognition of salient political and social realities uh, than perhaps any other political tendency. Um, and, you know, they're often, uh, you know, uh, resorting to conspiracy theories uh, out of decent enough motives because they think that Brexit is racist, because they don't like Trump, because he's a racist and so on. That's fair enough. But um, to try to explain the 2016 election or Brexit by reference to Russia and sock puppets and so on, um, I think that ultimately... That gets you no better than saying that George Soros did it. I think that ultimately uh, everybody is su subject and susceptible to uh, this form of paranoid reasoning um, and that no one really is in a position to um, disown and disavow the role of fantasy in political life. So the attempt to create an identity, um, which is, you know, between the far left and the far right is rather cheap in that respect. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of, I mean, it's obvious, of course, but it's remarkable watching this play out in the Democratic Party regarding uh, Russia and, and Russian interference in the election and, and, and so on. Um, you know, just given how much time they previously spent defining themselves against the Republicans in terms of not being those batshit crazy people who were into uh, conspiracy theories. Well, I mean, just to be clear, they sought um, Trump out um, because they thought that that would be a really good way to distinguish themselves, not just Hillary Clinton's campaign, but Obama uh, from pretty early on decided that he would pick out Trump and define himself against Trump. Um, and in that way, he gave Trump uh, credibility, coverage, you know, um, the Hillary Clinton campaign famously decided uh, that it would work to push the Republicans as far to the right as possible to, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, when, when Trump was nominated, they thought all their Christmases had come at once. They thought that that would be a, a great way to win. So, um, you know, th their whole outlook, uh, their whole political style um, has been thrown into such a question that uh, they are forced to rely on uh, unless they want to ask some really difficult questions about their uh, the the, pre the premises of their own politics, um, which will take a few more years of defeat for them to do, 
um, they're forced to rely on conspiracy thinking and paranoia. Yeah, I mean, regarding Trump, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's this great clip of John Oliver um, on The Daily Show from before the Republican primaries in 2016, uh, where he's um, sort of jokingly pleading with Donald Trump to run for president because of, of how hilarious it would be, uh, because, you know, obviously he would he would just crash and burn. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, not turned out to be quite as uh, as funny as John Oliver thought it would be. Um, j- just to go back to uh, the Labour Party, so um, on the question of the new code of conduct on anti-Semitism and uh, the adoption of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition, um, although not of some of the examples, um, what's your view on the code of conduct and how Labour has uh, has handled this issue? Well, first of all, I think they were right um, uh, politically and tactically um, and in all other ways to recognize that they had to deal with um, this as a problem. And a code of conduct recognizing uh, various forms of anti-Semitism and the ways in which it works and giving um, their disciplinary apparatuses uh, a rigorous basis for recognizing anti-Semitism and acting against it. I think all that is a good thing. Uh, I don't think much of the IHRA definition, largely because it isn't much of a definition, um, and because even all of its examples actually leave things rather unresolved, and it's precisely that indeterminacy um, that has led to uh, this definition being used to uh, chill pro-Palestine speech. So, for example, um, the controversial thing about, you know, uh, it could be anti-Semitic in view of the overall context to say that a state of Israel is intrinsically racist. Well, yes, it could. Um, And there are ways in which it might not be anti-Semitic. It really depends on the articulation. So that doesn't really tell us anything. what these are at best are signposts. There are ways in which you can sort of say, okay, I can recognize how an anti-Semitic trope could be constructed around that. It's to sensitize people to the ways in which anti-Semitism can manifest itself um, and to officially register that um, uh, sensitivity. But the lead drafter of the original document, I think his name is Kenneth Stern, has uh, come out and told us about this. He uh, testified before the Senate and he said very clearly, look, the way in which this document has actually worked in practice is not how I and others intended it to work. We do not want it to be used to chill pro-Palestine speech. And regrettably, that is what has happened in a number of cases. And what that means, in addition to it being an attack on free speech, um, it also means that states, often enough, not just campuses, not just political parties, but states, are getting themselves involved in shutting down a debate that is actually happening within the Jewish community. And I think that's a very important and wise uh, point to make, because uh, unless you're a racial essentialist, unless you're a racist in short, you recognize that among Jewish people, There is no uh, monopoly of of opinion. Uh, There are always going to be diverse opinions held about this and that thing. Uh, There are diverse opinions about Israel, about uh, whether to support Donald Trump, about all sorts of other unrelated issues, the minimum wage, religion, etc., etc. So um, 
there also happen to be differences of opinion about Zionism. Now, I think that the reach of anti-Zionism among Jewish people uh, is not great, uh, but it's not negligible either. Um, and I think that they have a right to their views and to silence them and say essentially that they're bad Jews, they're the wrong kind of Jews, which was essentially what people tried to say about Judas um, when uh, Corbyn attended their Seder. Um, I think it's disgraceful. And this is one of the problems that we're having at the moment. The International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, which organized the meeting, uh, at which um, uh, the Holocaust survivor, Hayo Meir, spoke, um, is being slandered in the media as anti-Semitic. These are Jewish activists. Many of them are Holocaust survivors or the children, <coughs> descendants of Holocaust survivors and victims. And they are being slandered as anti-Semitic on the basis that they are fundamentally opposed to the State of Israel. So wherever we have a conversation where there is an attempt to regulate the discourse around questions pertaining to anti-Semitism in Israel in such a way that a minority of Jewish opinion cannot express itself, I think there you've got a problem. I think there you've got essentially the state regulating how Jewish people are able to talk about their own interests, uh, uh, their own identity, um, their relationship to the state of Israel, and so on. That's not the only problem, obviously. I don't. I want everyone to have uh, the right to say what they think about Israel-Palestine. I want everyone to be uh, allowed to be as anti-Zionist as they like. But it's particularly egregious that and a survivor of Kristallnacht, an Auschwitz, whose parents were gassed in the Holocaust, he apparently is not allowed to speak on Holocaust Memorial Day about the Holocaust and its contemporary political relevance as he sees it, because of his views on Israel, because of his views on Gaza, because he saw some connection between what he'd been through and the predicament and dilemma of the Palestinians. In other words, because he respected the basic idea of solidarity. Uh, I think that is absolutely disgusting. I've never been more shocked and ashamed of the uh, discourse uh, than I ha have been in the last few days. Um, and not that I care much about nationalities and countries, but uh, insofar as this reflects where this country is going, I think it's absolutely shameful. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you really like the show, please do consider donating to the Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.